This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Whether the great interests of agriculture, manufacturers, commerce, or navigation can, within the pale of your constitutional powers, be aided in any of their relations, whether laws are provided in all cases where they are wanting, whether those provided are exactly what they should be, whether any abuses take place in their administration or in that of the public revenues, whether the organization of the public agents or of the public force is perfect in all its parts, in fine, whether anything can be done to advance the general good are questions within the limits of your functions, which will necessarily occupy your attention. In these and all other matters which you and your wisdom may propose for the good of our country, you may count with assurance on my hearty cooperation and faithful execution. Thomas Jefferson Perhaps it may be supposed, from the course which this business has taken, that the adversaries of the present measure indulge the expectation of being able to come forward at a future day, not to this house, for that hope is desperate, but to the public, with a more matured opposition than it is in their power to now make. But past experience has shown them that this is one of those subjects which pollution has sanctified, that the hallowed mysteries of corruption are not to be profaned by the eye of public curiosity. No, sir, the orgies of Yazoo speculation are not to be laid open to the vulgar gaze. None but the initiated are permitted to behold the monstrous sacrifice of the best interests of the nation on the altars of corruption. John Randolph of Roanoke. Though Jefferson's attaining a second term of office was fairly certain in the latter half of 1804, there was still much to be done at the end of the first term to lay the groundwork for what was next for the Jefferson administration and the United States. Little did anyone realize, though, just how derailed the agenda would get in the second session of the 8th Congress. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Howard and Jessica Dory from Plotting Through the Presidents for providing the intro quotes for this episode. If you haven't listened to Plotting Through the Presidents yet, you don't know what you're missing. Howard has blogged about presidential history for some time now, then earlier this year made the jump over to podcasting. With each episode, Howard and Jess look at lesser-known parts of early presidential history with equal parts humor and insight. Listeners of presidencies will recognize some of the non-presidential figures discussed on Plotting Through the Presidents, and a couple of people that we will discuss shortly are featured in their latest episode. To give Plotting Through the Presidents a listen, just go to plodpod.com or search for Plotting Through the Presidents wherever fine podcasts can be found. I'll also have a link on the source notes page for this episode. 1804 should have been a triumphal year for the president. Louisiana was being integrated into the United States. Democratic Republicans were finally starting to make inroads at dismantling Federalist control of the judiciary. Vice President Aaron Burr was soon to be consigned to political obscurity. Construction was continuing to pace on the federal capital. However, it had been marred by the untimely death of his daughter Maria. Still, business went on for Jefferson. On the day he left Washington, D.C. for Monticello on July 23, 1804, Jefferson concluded the purchase of, quote, 
a Negro man named John for and during the term of 11 years from the date of the said bill of sale. For $400, the president would legally enslave John until 1815. On the record of this bill of sale on Founders Online, there is an addendum from 1827 certifying that the John mentioned in the bill of sale was the same John who was the bearer of the bill of sale to the circuit court clerk of Washington, D.C. At that point, John was described as, quote, a black man about 46 years of age, five feet seven inches high, straight and well-made, with two small scars on his forehead, no other perceivable marks or scars, very pleasing countenance. I haven't been able to find anything else about John to date, but one can only wonder what happened in the years in between and what brought him to the circuit court to certify the bill of sale which was supposed to eventually set him free. As we shall explore in greater detail in the not-too-distant future, neither personal tragedy nor public affairs would alter Jefferson's interactions with those he enslaved. The next congressional session was scheduled to begin on November 5th, which meant that there was much preparation to be done. In terms of the administration, it meant the drafting of an annual message. The message sent to Congress on November 8th reported on continued areas of concern and action, such as ensuring the safety of neutral U.S. trade in light of the war in Europe, relations with Spain, which we'll talk more about shortly, and the Americanization of Louisiana. The president in his annual message also touched on the situation with naval operations in the Mediterranean, which will be a subject that we come back to in another episode. By and large, the annual message that year was what anyone would expect and might have been seen as a safe message coming from a president coasting into a second term. Jefferson would soon learn, however, that he wasn't setting the agenda for this session of Congress. Before we get into the congressional drama, let's take a little detour over to Madrid, where U.S. Minister to Spain Charles Pinckney had been working for the majority of the first term. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. As noted by Pinckney biographer Marty Matthews, quote, During his years in Spain, most of Pinckney's time was spent on three major issues. We've talked previously about the Jefferson administration's desire to acquire Florida, and indeed, it was for this purpose that James Monroe would soon travel to Madrid to join Pinckney in negotiations towards that goal. Pinckney had also worked to smooth out the tensions over the Louisiana Purchase, another subject that we've addressed in previous episodes. Pinckney did almost have one diplomatic triumph under his belt, though. The third major focus for him was to, quote, negotiate settlement of spoliation claims of the United States against Spain. When Pinckney began negotiations upon his arrival in November 1801, he had to deal with the Spanish government's differing views on the two different types of claims. Claims on attacks by Spanish ships against American vessels versus those which involved French ships that had been fitted in Spanish ports with the goods captured in the raid being sold in Spain. The Spanish government, led by Pedro Savalos, was more than willing to settle the claims against Spanish ships, but outright refused to discuss claims against the French vessels. Thus, Pinckney focused on the former, and in August 1802, he concluded a convention with Spain settling the claims against the Spanish ships with a clause that the claims against the French vessels will be resolved at a later date. The U.S. minister then sent the convention on to Washington for ratification, 
and Jefferson submitted the treaty to the Senate on January 11, 1803. However, when the Senate voted on it in March, it didn't get the required two-thirds vote for ratification, though a motion did pass to reconsider it in the next congressional session that would begin in October. When Congress returned to the Capitol but still failed to act on the treaty, Jefferson sent a message on December 21st assuring the senators that the claims on the French vessels would be included in negotiations to define the borders of the Louisiana Purchase. This seemed to do the trick, and on January 9th, 1804, the Senate ratified the Treaty with Spain by a vote of 21-7. Unfortunately, with the year delay in ratification, the Spanish government had grown cold feet and refused to affirm the treaty to bring it into effect. With that, Pinckney's one potential success during his mission evaporated into nothingness, and all of the claims would remain unsettled. Understandably, Pinckney was upset at this development and demanded his passport, which, had he left his post in protest, would have caused a serious rupture in U.S.-Spanish relations. However, the government in Madrid did not blink at the bluff, and Pinckney ultimately dropped his request for his passport in order to await his backup, who would hopefully help him to make some headway. One can imagine that in the latter part of 1804, U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe was ready for some new scenery. Compared to the success of the Louisiana Purchase, his time in London to that point had been rather disappointing. Little progress had been made in negotiations with the previous Addington government, and following his initial meetings with the new Foreign Secretary under the Pitt government, there was little reason to hope for anything more than the same. Indeed, as noted by Monroe biographer Tim McGrath, quote, Monroe's discussions with the new Foreign Secretary went dreadfully. McGrath describes British Foreign Secretary Dudley Ryder, the Earl of Harrowby, as, quote, neither amiable nor vague. The only diplomatic overture that Harrowby had made to the U.S. minister was a renewal of parts of the Jay Treaty, an agreement which Monroe and his fellow Democratic-Republicans had vehemently opposed in the first place. If those were the only grounds for discussion with Harrowby and the Pitt government, there was no use in Monroe remaining in Britain. Likewise, the visit of U.S. Minister to France Robert Livingston to London, as described last episode, had been an exercise in patience for Monroe due to the tensions between the two and the drama that Livingston's trip caused. Thus, in October 1804, U.S. Minister to Britain Monroe and his family boarded a ship bound for Rotterdam in the Batavian Republic. No, your ears aren't deceiving you, dear listener. Monroe was in fact bound for Spain, but due to the war between Britain and France, the usual modes of travel between the British Isles and the continent were unavailable. Thus, the detour to what is now the Netherlands, and from there, the Monroes made their way to France. The stopover in France had a twofold purpose. In terms of personal business, Monroe enrolled his daughter Eliza in a school in France, but there was also public business to attend to in Paris. Monroe had to confer with the outgoing minister, Robert Livingston, to get the latest on the French position on the Floridas. As usual, however, unbeknownst to Monroe prior to their meeting, when he learned that his rival was on the way, Livingston made one last push to acquire West Florida for the U.S. and thus claim a major diplomatic triumph for himself. He approached French Foreign Minister Talleyrand with a proposal of, quote, a loan to Spain for 70 million livres for West Florida, nearly the same amount agreed upon for all of Louisiana. Now, Livingston had no official authorization to make such an offer, as Monroe exasperatingly reminded him when his colleagues shared this news. While Livingston and Monroe had stretched the numbers that they had been authorized to offer in the negotiations for Louisiana, they at least had some level of authorization with which to act. 
This was Livingston going completely rogue in a desperate bid for personal glory. Further, this offer would hamper Monroe's efforts to negotiate on the Floridas as he was aiming to acquire both East and West Florida. With Livingston offering this exorbitant price for such a small geographic area as West Florida, it meant that Monroe and Pinckney would have a tougher time talking the price down to a figure that would be acceptable to the Jefferson administration and Congress. Because of this, Monroe breached traditional diplomatic protocols and wrote directly to Talleyrand to argue for American claims on West Florida as well as to express indignation on attacks on American shipping by French and Spanish vessels. His going out on a limb was to no avail as Talleyrand refused to respond to this diplomat unrecognized by the French government. Instead, Monroe received word through back channels. First, French Treasury Minister Francois Babet-Morbois got Monroe to the side and told him that, quote, Livingston's instincts were correct, if not proper. Florida could be had, perhaps, but not without a substantial outlay of money. Then an aide to Talleyrand approached Monroe and told him that a deal could be had, but that, quote, the United States must pay money. With these messages, two things became clear. First, there was little reason for Monroe to remain in Paris for much longer, but more importantly, there was little likelihood that Monroe would be able to successfully negotiate a purchase of the Floridas as the French seemed unlikely to offer their support for the territorial acquisition without a serious greasing of the wheels. Monroe did have one more hope, though. December 2nd was the date of Napoleon's coronation as Emperor of the French. As a foreign dignitary with close ties to the American president, Monroe might be invited to attend. Day after day went by, however, with no invitation. Miraculously, after Monroe complained to Barbain-Wambois about the insult, two invitations arrived at the Monroe's lodgings. However, James and Elizabeth would not be seated with the other foreign dignitaries. Instead, they would be in the gallery. As McGrath notes, quote, Monroe saw this affront as Napoleon's final answer on Florida. Monroe was on his own. We'll catch up with Monroe and his possibly doomed before it started mission to Spain in a future episode. For now, Let's turn back to Washington to see what drama unfolded when Congress reconvened on November 5, 1804. There were two main points of contention in that short session between November and the inauguration in March 1805, and at the center of both was Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. As mentioned in previous episodes, Randolph had become a leading force in Congress since his cousin Jefferson became president, so it's not altogether surprising to find him in the middle of the action. What was surprising, though, was to find him attacking members of the administration. To go with the longest-running item of business first, I must invite you to think back all the way to episode 1.24 and more recently in episode 3.9 when we discussed the Yazoo land claims. For those of you who need a quick recap, during the Washington administration, the Georgia state legislature authorized the state governor, quote, to transfer more than 35 million acres to land companies at a cost of one and a half cents per acre, or, quote, $500,000 for some 35 million acres of land comprising the larger part of the present states of Mississippi and Alabama, an area known as the Yazoo Land, due to the Yazoo River being a major river in the area. At the time, that territory was still claimed by Georgia, but the federal government did not recognize the claim as the native peoples in the area, quote, had not yet yielded title to the lands in question, and only the federal government had constitutional authority to treat with them. Moreover, 
It was soon discovered that, quote, every legislator but one voting for the Yazoo Act of 1795, as the authorizing act was dubbed, was personally invested in the project because of bribe or investment. In the wake of the scandal that ensued, the voters of Georgia turned out the legislators who had voted for the Yazoo Act, and the state negotiated with the federal government after Jefferson took office to ultimately agree to the Compromise of 1802, where Georgia would yield its rights to the Yazoo land to the federal government and 5 million acres would be reserved out of the territory to satisfy some claimants who had purchased land as a result of the initial sale. Now, one thing that should be noted here is that the three commissioners who had negotiated the compromise with Georgia were also three high-ranking members of Jefferson's administration, Secretary of State James Madison, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, and Attorney General Levi Lincoln. Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone asserts that, quote, the proposal was Jeffersonian only in the sense that it was made to Congress by three high-ranking members of the government in whose integrity and patriotism the president reposed complete confidence. Despite that, and despite his own personal friendship with Gallatin, Representative Randolph would come to be the most vehement and vocal critic of the Yazoo Compromise. After the recommendations were put before Congress on February 7, 1804, and quote, what was expected to be a perfunctory review and speedy approval, Randolph soon spoke up to express his opposition. While he felt that the Georgia state legislature was fully within its rights to repeal the Yazoo Act of 1795 as it had done, Randolph attacked Jefferson administration for unconstitutionally, quote, meddling in economic affairs. The provision of setting aside 5 million acres to satisfy claimants, he argued, would benefit the investors and schemers who had pushed through the original bill. Instead, Randolph proposed, quote, his own resolution barring any claims derived under any act of the state of Georgia passed in the year 1795 in relation to land ceded to the United States. The discussion of Randolph's resolution quickly grew heated, and Randolph apparently got into a back and forth with Representative Willis Alston, Democratic Republican from North Carolina. That evening, the two ended up, quote, seated at the same dining room table at Mrs. Shields' boarding house, and the argument picked back up there. When Alston, quote, contradicted Randolph in some matter of fact, Randolph asserted that he would, quote, not permit himself to be contradicted by any man without satisfaction, and especially from such a man as Alston was. At that point, the representative from Virginia, quote, threw a glass of wine in Alston's face. Alston answered by hurling a glass decanter at Randolph's head. Other glassware was broken in the melee, and in the aftermath, quote, Alston sent a challenge, but Randolph refused to receive it, promising instant death to anyone who attempted to deliver it. Ultimately, a local judge interceded and managed to quell the conflict. Though it ended without a duel, as you can see, Randolph was a man of passion, and he wasn't done in his attack on the Yazoo Compromise. On the 18th, Randolph withdrew his original resolution and in its place introduced two more, which would not only affirm the rights of the Georgia government to declare the original Yazoo Act, quote, null and void, but also unequivocally bar, quote, the five millions of acres from being appropriated to quiet or compensate any claims derived under any act or pretended act of the state of Georgia. On March 7th, he delivered a speech in the House affirming that, quote, the sovereignty of the states has ever been the cardinal principle of my political opinions and accusing the Jefferson administration of, quote, federal usurpation in intervening in the matter. Randolph warned his fellow representatives that, quote, if they pass the bill in question, they do an act which whole ages of political penance will never atone. 
The Yazoo matter was not settled prior to the congressional session ending, and thus, when Congress returned to D.C. in November, it was waiting for them, and Randolph was determined to continue the fight. Now, this wasn't the only matter occupying Randolph, as we shall discuss in more detail shortly. During the month of December, Randolph was so busy that he only spoke in the House four times the entire month, something quite unusual for someone so outspoken. As the month went on, Randolph's health started to suffer, and by mid-January, he wrote, quote, that his health of late is very infirm. This infirmity did not deter him from his work, however, and on January 29th, he rose in the House to express his opposition to another attempt to settle the claims. For someone who had been so ill, everyone was surprised to be treated to, as one observer described it, quote, a tirade such as the House had never yet heard. Randolph biographer David Johnson wrote that, quote, for two days, Randolph subjected the House, his party, and the commissioners to the verbal equivalent of being drawn and quartered. Randolph described the Yazoo Compromise as, quote-unquote, public plunder, and said that the agreement to settle the claims was, quote, to effect some evil purpose in a corrupt collision with, quote, the swindlers of 1795. He attacked land speculators, asserting that, quote, goad it by avarice, they buy only to sell and sell only to buy. The retail trade of fraud and imposture yields too small and slow a profit to gratify their cupidity. They buy and sell corruption in the gross, and a few millions, more or less, is hardly felt in the account. He then went on to attack Postmaster General Gideon Granger, who, as a land speculator in his own right, Randolph directly accused of lobbying to support the claims of the New England Mississippi Company and said that he felt sure that Granger had awarded, quote, snug appointments and fat post office contracts in exchange for support. Randolph wrapped up this assault by promising never to make any future remarks, quote, on the crimes and follies of Federalist administrations if the Yazoo Compromise passed in Congress as, quote, I should disdain to prat about the petty larcenies of our predecessors after having given my sanction to this atrocious public robbery. Ultimately, the Yazoo Compromise proposal was allowed to die a quiet death, but Randolph's attack had shaken the Democratic-Republican members of Congress. As Representative Erastus Root of New York remarked, after Randolph's accusations, quote, I must either acknowledge that I have been bribed, that I am base and corrupt, or that I have leagued in sentiment with the Federalist. Corruption in government is a story that carries through to the earliest annals of human history, but commendable as it may have been for Randolph to have fought back against it with all of his might, the timing could not have been worse for a party attempting to do something that was unprecedented in the history of the government under the U.S. Constitution. Randolph's attacks on his fellow party members in the Yazoo land controversy was guaranteed to have ramifications on his other major project, the impeachment and removal of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. Longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize the name Samuel Chase as he was quite infamous for delivering harsh judgments under the Alien and Sedition Acts during the Adams administration. Because of this, he had earned the ire of the Democratic Republicans and was the poster boy for their claims of Federalist malfeasance on the bench. As stated in episode 3.20, a House committee in March 1804 had recommended Chase's impeachment, but the actual motion and impeachment wouldn't come up until the session starting in November. Unlike the case of Judge John Pickering's impeachment, which was also covered in episode 3.20, Justice Chase would prove to not be a passive defendant. 
He wrote a memorial to the House of Representatives with a request that the House go ahead and introduce the impeachment charges against him so that he would have a few months to prepare his defense. However, before he could send it to the House, Congress adjourned, and thus Chase, as with everyone else, would have to wait until the end of the year to find out what exactly he was being charged with. Though Democratic Republicans were eager for Chase's impeachment, it wouldn't be until November 30th that Representative Randolph introduced the articles of impeachment against Chase in the House. In addition to the articles that Randolph introduced, another member of the House introduced one specifically about Chase's role in the trial and imprisonment of James Callender. With this done, all eight articles of impeachment were adopted by the House on the same day. When Chase learned of the articles against him, he wrote that they were drafted with, quote, the most aggravated and inflamed construction that passion and party spirit could devise. The justice pulled out his memorial from the spring and sent it to various newspapers to be printed along with the articles of impeachment. And a Federalist paper called it, quote, an interesting, forcible, and eloquent appeal to the justice of his country against an unheard of, cruel, and detestable party persecution. As with the trial of Judge Pickering, House managers were selected to prosecute the trial in the Senate with some familiar names who had served as managers in the Pickering trial in the mix, including Representative Joseph Nicholson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, Representative Caesar Rodney, Democratic-Republican from Delaware, and of course, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke. Now, before we get into the trial, I'd like to take a quick detour to point out one interesting point about the situation in the Senate in this final congressional session of Jefferson's first term. The upper house of Congress was being presided over by the outgoing vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr. Yes, the same vice president, Aaron Burr, who had killed Alexander Hamilton in July and was technically on the run from the authorities. In the aftermath of Hamilton's death, quote, there were processions and mass meetings in his honor in numerous American cities. Former Senator Gouverneur Morris delivered the funeral oration to the thousands gathered for the former Secretary Treasury's interment in New York City. As noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, Overnight, Hamilton had become once again a colossus in the minds of his countrymen, and just as speedily, Aaron Burr became his cold-blooded murderer in many of those same minds. To this end, weird tales were circulated that for days before the duel, Burr had practiced target shooting that Hamilton had gone manfully to the field of honor and bared his breast to the foe, whereas Burr was wrapped up in bombazine, knowing that silk deflected lead, that while Hamilton lay dying in Greenwich Village, the colonel, i.e. Burr, and his cronies had caroused and gloated at Richmond Hill. As we've already seen in the podcast, dear listener, Aaron Burr is one of those figures in history that even his contemporaries were inclined to believe the worst about. But in this case, it wasn't just Burr's reputation that was on the line. The coroner for the city and county of New York, John Berger, and 15 jurors began an investigation into Hamilton's death. Burr naturally shot back at the investigation as quote-unquote unexampled, as Hamilton had been fatally wounded in another state. But fearing that the conclusion reached by the jury may put him at a disadvantage, Burr departed from Manhattan on the morning of July 21st and went first to New Jersey, then on to Philadelphia. It was there that he learned that, Though the coroner's jury had come to a pronouncement of murder in the case on August 2nd, a grand jury convened in the matter, quote, recognizing the illegality of the charge, quickly replaced it with an indictment for misdemeanor, specifically for having uttered and sent a charge. Though New York Governor Morgan Lewis pronounced the proceedings against Burr as, quote, disgraceful, illiberal, and ungentlemanly, pressure was put on him to seek Burr's extradition from Pennsylvania. Thus, on August 11th, 
Burr wrote to his daughter Theodosia that he would head further south. Accompanied by a man that he enslaved, Peter Yates, and a friend, Samuel Swartwald, who we'll talk about again when we get to the Jackson presidency, Vice President Aaron Burr fled to St. Simons Island, off the coast of Georgia, and to the plantation of Senator Pierce Butler, Democratic-Republican from Georgia. Now, there's a key point that we need to note with this interlude at St. Simons Island, according to Burr biographer Lomask. Quote, he, Burr, had chosen St. Simons not only because of its remoteness from New York and New Jersey, but because of its nearness to that still Spanish-owned slab of the Southland known as the Floridas. That's right, Burr was quite interested in Spanish territory in the South and West, and his interest had been spurred on by General James Wilkinson upon his return from New Orleans. Wilkinson wrote to Burr in May 1804 requesting, quote, to take a bed with you if it may be done without observation or intrusion. And thus, the two met at Burr's home, Richmond Hill, that month. Now, we should note that we don't really know what they may have discussed in that meeting, but in future episodes, you'll come to understand why historians look back on this meeting and speculate that they may have discussed Spain's North American colonies. We'll discuss more on Wilkinson's actions upon returning from New Orleans in a later episode, but it is important to note this meeting when we consider that, shortly after Burr's arrival at St. Simon's Island, the vice president ventured further south into the Floridas. Again from Lomas, quote, There, giving himself out to be a London merchant, he spent some 11 days gathering data on the lay of the land and the sentiments of its inhabitants before returning to Senator Butler's plantation in Georgia. On his return to St. Simon's, Burr learned that things had cooled down in New York, and thus he began a journey back north. However, being so close to his beloved daughter Theodosia and her family, there was no way he was not going to stop to see the Alstons in South Carolina. Thus, he began a meandering journey back along the coast. On October 1st, he stopped in Savannah, where he was greeted by, quote, a crowd of citizens who saw the killer of Hamilton as something of a hero. Again from Lomas, quote, nor were the Georgians the last to treat the colonel in this manner. At other places, as he forged northward by slow stages, his passage took on some of the trappings of a triumphal procession. He made his way into South Carolina to visit his family before going on through North Carolina and Virginia. However, before he could venture much further, he learned that a grand jury in New Jersey had indicted him for murder. To date, Burr is the first and only vice president to be indicted for murder. Traveling by land, there was no easy way to return to New York except to go through New Jersey, and even then, extradition was always a threat. Thus, Burr decided to hunker down in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As noted by Senator William Plumer, Federalist from New Hampshire, upon the convening of the new session of the Senate on November 5th, quote, This is, I believe, the first time that ever a vice president appeared in the Senate the first day of a session. It certainly is the first time, and God grant it may be the last, that ever a man so justly charged with such an infamous crime presided in the American Senate. We are, indeed, fallen on evil times. Though present, Senator Plumer described Burr as, quote, uneasy, discontented, and hurried, and noted that, quote, he appears to have lost those easy, graceful manners that beguiled the hours away the last session. Still, here he was in Washington on the eve of one of the most important legislative events of the early republic that everyone was aware could completely reshape the federal judiciary. As with the Pickering trial, it was clear that there was a faction in the Senate that would vote to convict and remove Chase no matter what he said. At its head was Senator William Branch Giles, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. Giles had long been a vocal supporter of, quote, 
an absolute repeal of the federal judicial system and had, as described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, sentiments about the judiciary that were more radical than any Jefferson ever expressed. It should be noted that, quote, during the preliminaries of the Chase trial, Senator Giles was reported as consulting with John Randolph every day, and Senator John Quincy Adams, Federalist from Massachusetts, expressed his concerns, quote, that the issue of Chase's prosecution would be settled out of doors. Given what had happened in the Pickering trial, that was very much a valid concern. A summons was sent along with an official copy of the Articles of Impeachment to Chase, and as requested, on January 2, 1805, he appeared before the Senate. In his appearance, Justice Chase requested that the trial be postponed until the next congressional session in order to allow him an opportunity to prepare his defense. This request was denied, but he was at least given a month to prepare. The date of the trial was set for February 4th, just one month prior to Jefferson taking the oath of office for a second time. Though a month may not seem like a long time, for Chase, it was a beneficial respite. As mentioned in episode 3.12, the impeachment craze was not just happening in Democratic-Republican circles on the federal level. In Pennsylvania, the state Democratic-Republican leadership had systematically been removing Federalist state judges one by one. In the spring of 1804, however, they upped the ante. The lower house of the state legislature voted to remove not one, not two, but three Federalist judges of the state Supreme Court. However, this set off a confrontation with a Democratic-Republican judge that longtime listeners of the podcast may remember from the episodes on the Whiskey Rebellion. Hugh Henry Brackenridge, who we last saw in episode 1.23 as a leader in western Pennsylvania and an intermediary attempting to quell the radical impulses of all sides in the Whiskey Rebellion, had ended up on the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. When his three colleagues were impeached, though he hadn't been involved in the case cited as the cause for their impeachment, he insisted that he be impeached as well to show his solidarity with them. Though an appeal was made by state legislatures to Democratic-Republican Governor Thomas McKean to remove Brackenridge as well, McKean knew that was a step too far. The trial in the state Senate would proceed with just the three Federalist judges. Despite this, as with the Whiskey Rebellion, Brackenridge's stand seems to have broken the spirit of radicalism, as, even with the help of Representative Caesar Rodney, the same U.S. representative named as one of the House managers in the Chase trial, the prosecution was unable to convince the Pennsylvania State Senate to remove the judges. All three were acquitted on January 25th. Though there had been a majority to convict, to remove them required a two-thirds vote, and that was too much to ask from the Pennsylvania State Senate. As noted by Malone, quote, the anti-judiciary group appeared to many moderate Republicans to have overreached themselves, and party unity was shattered in Pennsylvania. Coming alongside Representative Randolph's attack against his own party around the same time, when the Chase trial began on February 4, 1805, the Democratic-Republican faction on the state and national level was much less solid than it had been during the Pickering trial the year prior. As described by Dumas Malone, quote, The stage for the trial was well set in the Senate chamber, with crimson-colored benches for members of that body on each side of the vice president's seat, chairs for the representatives, boxes for counsel and stenographers, diplomats, and high American officials, an elegant special gallery for ladies, which, however, the gentlemen invaded, and the regular gallery for the general public, who were freely admitted. As described by historian Gene Edward Smith, when the trial began, quote, there were 34 senators present, 25 Republicans, and 9 Federalists. 23 votes, or two-thirds of the Senate, were required for conviction. 
which meant that if the decision went along party lines, the Republicans had the necessary votes to remove Chase. This didn't mean, however, that they were willing to leave that chance. The irony of having a man on the run for murder playing a key role in the trial of the decade was not lost on people. As vice president, Burr was not only responsible for making all the arrangements for the trial, but he would also preside over the proceedings. Though the party had shunned him and worked in the past year to deny him both another term as vice president and his gubernatorial run in New York, Democratic Republicans in Washington found themselves in the uncomfortable position of trying to get on Burr's good side in order to try to get him to make rulings that would help their cause in the trial. Ultimately, though, on the day set for the trial to begin, all eyes were on the 63-year-old Justice Chase. Chase was not in the best of health, suffering from gout and physical infirmity. Despite this, he took two and a half hours to deliver, with the help of two counselors, a response to the articles of impeachment. The eighth article in particular he focused on as it dealt with his having delivered a charge to a grand jury in Baltimore in May 1803, in which he expressed his thoughts on, as described by historian Herbert Johnson, quote, the dangerous democratic activities of the Jefferson administration. Though denying that his remarks were anything resembling, quote, seditious or intemperate and inflammatory, he also reminded the court that there was in fact no law forbidding a judge from expressing his own opinions to a grand jury. Chase warned that if Congress removed him for this purpose, it would mean that the quote-unquote arbitrary will of the federal legislative branch would gain unconstitutional domination over quote, the liberty of speech on national concerns and the tenure of the judicial office. Justice Chase further noted that the charges against him in six of the eight articles of impeachment had in fact been upheld by other judges, thus again pointing out quote, that politics not the Constitution, was driving the prosecution. Once Chase was done, he was permitted to withdraw from the proceedings due to his ill health, and the trial continued with Chase's counsel representing him. On his defense team, Chase had former Attorney General Charles Lee, former Representative Robert Goodloe Harper, former Maryland Attorney General Luther Marden, former U.S. Circuit Court Judge Philip Barden Key, and Joseph Hopkinson. All were well-respected lawyers in their own right, and combined, they presented a formidable legal team. Meanwhile, on the Democratic-Republican side, as noted by Malone, quote, John Randolph, exhausted and ill, had made a bad beginning. Randolph had wasted his powers in the Yazoo fight in January. He was not really prepared for this legal battle, but throughout it, he was the major performer on the side of the prosecution. The arguments made by the prosecution and the defense would be echoed time and again on into modern history when it came to impeachment. Again from Smith, quote, The House managers defined high crimes and misdemeanors in political terms, holding that the Senate's power of impeachment was unlimited and that it did not require proof of criminality or corruption. Chase's defense team responded with tight legal arguments insisting that to be impeachable, a judge's conduct must constitute an indictable offense. As the arguments went back and forth, one of the more dramatic moments in the trial came on February 16th, when Chief Justice John Marshall himself was called to the stand as a witness for the defense. Historian Joel Richard Paul, in his book on Marshall, asserts that, quote, Republicans saw Chase as a proxy for Chief Justice Marshall and impeaching him as a chance to intimidate the whole federal judiciary. Thus, as with other aspects of his career to date as Chief Justice, Marshall would have to approach this testimony with the political implications of his words and actions in mind. The focus of the questions and the cross-examination was on Chase's conduct 
while presiding over James Callender's trial. Particularly with Randolph's cross-examination, Marshall was put on the spot and, quote, acknowledged that Chase and Callender's attorneys had often clashed. Though Senator William Plumer felt that Marshall, quote, was too conciliatory towards the prosecutors, Marshall did successfully fend back Randolph's attempts to get him to say that the blame for that clash was solely on Chase's shoulders. Again from Smith, quote, Throughout his testimony, Marshall was understated and judicious. He discussed Chase's rulings in the context of a bitter trial in which the defense attorneys were angling for every advantage. More important, he adhered closely to the strategy of Chase's lawyers and dealt exclusively with the legal issues. Malone saw Marshall's testimony in more of a political lens and concluded that the Chief Justice, quote, was not disposed to provoke unnecessary conflict with Congress by being too adversarial in his approach to the House managers. The trial wrapped up with closing arguments delivered starting on February 20th and with Randolph getting the last word on the 27th with a three-hour speech that Representative Manasseh Cutler, Federalist from Massachusetts, proclaimed to be, quote, an outrageous, infuriated declamation which might have done honor to Marat or Robespierre. Even though sympathetic to Randolph could not see it as a strong closing argument, with a friend and colleague later writing that it was not, quote, the greatest proof of his ability. Randolph biographer David Johnson, when discussing this point in the trial, reminded readers that, quote, Randolph was ill and his physical, emotional, and nervous state was hardly sturdy enough to support his efforts. He goes on to speculate that, quote, it is possible that he was under the influence of opium. If, as described by a contemporary, Randolph was drinking a wine mixture between almost every sentence in a speech over three hours, he could have become intoxicated during the course of his remarks. That he was ill-prepared was manifest. He had displayed amateurish legal talents during the trial, and this lack of legal acumen could not long be disguised by political rhetoric. Following that performance, the Senate convened to finalize their last bit of procedural business before voting on the impeachment articles. Something happened in that process which was a clear sign to anyone privy to this act that the Chase trial would be much different from that of Judge John Pickering. Senator James A. Baird, Federalist from Delaware, put forward a proposal that, rather than just asking each senator to respond aye or no to whether the impeached judge was guilty as charged, they should now have to respond to, quote, whether or not Chase was guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, as charged in a particular article. While this is a subtle change of language, it was clear that this was meant to give the Democratic-Republican senators pause while voting. Though there were only nine Federalists, as noted earlier, 17 senators voted to approve this change of language, a majority by one vote. At noon on March 1, 1805, the trial reconvened, and spectators gathered to hear the verdict. One by one, senator by senator, article by article, Vice President Burr called out, Is Samuel Chase Esquire guilty or not guilty of a high crime or misdemeanor in the article of impeachment just read? One article after another, the two-thirds majority required, was not met. And finally, after two hours, and with the eighth article of impeachment being voted down, Burr proclaimed Associate Justice Samuel Chase to have been acquitted. John Randolph of Roanoke rushed out of the chamber, followed closely by Joseph Nicholson, with the two heading over to the House chamber, where Randolph put forward a proposed constitutional amendment which would allow for the removal of federal judges by a vote of Congress. Nicholson then introduced an amendment which would authorize state legislatures to recall senators. 
It was clear that there was a fury in the Democratic-Republican ranks at the loss in what should have been a surefire victory, but this fire and fury would be for naught. These motions would go nowhere, and Congress would adjourn on schedule in anticipation of Jefferson's second inaugural. It's difficult to underestimate the impact of the Chase acquittal. As stated by Stephen Presser on Chase's entry in the Oxford Companion to the Supreme Court of the United States, quote, Historians usually point to the failure of the Senate to remove Chase as a victory for judicial independence and as having established the precedent that a judge could not be removed merely as a result of the stating of political views from the bench. More correctly, however, the proceeding ought to be seen as establishing the principle that it was dangerous for a judge, such as Chase, to articulate political philosophy, particularly one at odds with the prevailing democratic ethos of the Jeffersonians. This moment in American history not only preserved the idea of judicial independence when it seemed on the brink of destruction, but also reshaped what future generations would think of in terms of the ideal of the judiciary. This ideal would be shaped more by the example of Chief Justice John Marshall than of the political jurists that have predominated our narrative to date. This didn't mean, of course, that the criticism of Chief Justice Marshall or of the judicial branch would end. Indeed, that criticism continues up to the present day. But the fact that the American public, by and large, continues to hold judges and justices to high ideals is a legacy of the Chase trial. Naturally, we'll continue to come back to the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary in future episodes. But for now, it's time for us to draw this episode to a close. Thanks again to Howard and Jess for providing the intro quotes for this episode. And be sure to check out Plotting Through the Presidents anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Thanks also to the itinerant band, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this series. To find links to Plotting Through the Presidents or the itinerant band, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Also at the website, you can find past episodes, as well as tons of links with information on all of the presidents. You can also learn how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support this podcast. The quickest and easiest way is to leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Personally, I always appreciate those notes of encouragement, and it helps other folks to know why they should give presidencies a listen. If you'd like to contribute financially, I do have an Amazon wish list with books that would contribute to research for future episodes, as well as a partnership with the Hero Soap Company that, by using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, Not only will you get a discount, but you'll also help support my efforts with this podcast. Those are all one-time contributions, but if you'd like to contribute on a regular basis, you can join our latest patron, Michael, in signing up to provide a monthly contribution by going to patreon.com slash presidencies. I'm so thankful for Michael and all of our patrons for their ongoing support for this project as we're coming up on the fourth anniversary of the podcast. There's much more presidential history to uncover, and I can't tell you what it means to have team presidencies along for the journey. Speaking of, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.